Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Maury Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. I'm Sarah Blakemore. Coming up on The Gifted Life today. We'll be bringing you an award-winning gifted musician who uses his transplant story to inspire others. And we're going to talk about how important human touch is to our mental health. All that and more on this episode, episode 170 of The Gifted Life. Hey guys, here on the Gifted Life Podcast, we are thrilled to introduce you to our newest friend, Paul Cardall. Paul, we just like saying your name, Paul Cardall. <laughs> I think my, father, my, my parents were obviously rappers or poets. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, love the sound of your voice as well. We know you, you two have a, a podcast, so uh, we want to uh, dip into all these things, but you're an award-winning pianist, an entrepreneur, and you're a heart transplant recipient and an all of your promotional items, everything out there, you always promote donation, promote health, inspire, education. And I was like, I already like him. Haven't met him, but (laughs) man, what a cool dude who has lived quite the life. So thanks for joining us here on The Gifted Life. My pleasure. It's good to be alive. All right. So let's talk about, um, first of all, we we saw you on, on stage in front of, you know, Thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of people. Uh, everyone knows you. You're a Gospel Music Associ- uh, Association Dove Award winner for instrumentals. Uh, so what's your talents that, that you push out there? It's You know, I've been really blessed because having been born with only half a heart, I couldn't do sports. And I was envious and jealous of everybody out there on the playground shooting hoops. I was, you know, the last kid to get picked. And so I found music and and music in a way found me and I found my purpose as a teenager after my third major open heart surgery uh music just I sat at the piano in my my parents living room and I had lost a friend who was very healthy and I was trying to figure out like what's the deal here why am I why do I have this heart defect why am I scarred why am I jacked up and somebody who's perfectly healthy out of nowhere uh, passes. So I was grieving. I was trying to understand my my life. And the piano to me is like the puzzle of life. And I would sit and try to put the pieces together. And this gift of music came. I could play by ear. I could play songs. And it just snowballed into um, really a means to an end in the beginning. My heart was being healed spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically by playing music. And uh, I've been doing it ever since in an effort to try to help heal other hearts. It's funny that you you talk about and you open with the fact that, you Love know, that. you 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 wish you could play basketball mm-hmm. and other sports and it's and I see that so often that uh, people who are so good and so talented as musicians often like to play sports, and then the the athletes often want to get into the, dabble into the musician <laughs> yeah. world. <laughs> it's funny, and actors. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, a lot of bad Russell Crowe bands. <laughs> so, so can you take us a little bit? You you touched on the fact that you know you had, uh, you know, half a heart, and then you had uh, surgeries. Obviously. 
um, you know, you don't remember your first surgery, but can you take us back and, and tell us a little bit about what happened at, at birth and, and what kind of got you in the situation that you were in? Yeah, I mean, it was 1973 and heart surgery was still relatively new. And um, some of the first heart surgeries were on children anyway. Uh, and I came into the world, um, my my parents had, I had three older sisters and I'm born and they were confused because I was uh, blue. And so immediately the cardiologist said, uh, you know, he's a blue baby. He needs some type of surgery. So within, I wasn't even a day old and they cut me open and discovered I only had a single functioning ventricle and my arteries, my greater arteries were transposed. They were reversed. So my heart was like in backwards. And then I had pulmonary stenosis and all these holes. So they pretty much wrote me off. There's no way he's going to make it. But the surgeon, I don't know what sprinkler system he had been fixing, but he corrected the flow. (laughs) perfectly so that I could at least be taken home by my parents um, so they could have me a little longer. That led to a year, another year, and, and you know, I kept living to their surprise, to the cardiologist's surprise. And I was one of those pioneer kids with congenital heart disease that was surviving mm. uh, long enough for them to experiment even more on me. And <laughs> as a I, you know, I, I think I had a pretty normal childhood. Uh, I lived in Utah. We had the mountains. I was in scouting. I was always the last to get up the hill on a mm-hmm. hike, but I was still able to hike a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a family of, you know, I've got a large family, eight brothers and sisters. And so I was always at the same time, kind of that center of attention without wanting that attention. Mm, yeah. Like the example of what what a miracle is what a you know so i was the subject of like faith promoting stories in my uh religious upbringing uh community in salt lake city and so i i I, at times it was beautiful and at the same time it was um obnoxious it's a lot of pressure for a kid heavy (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) yeah because you, you you think you don't think about retirement because you've heard the doctors say um he's probably not even going to go to college so you're thinking you're thinking eternal retirement and how do you deal with that as a kid you're thrown into you know what is life all about goodness so music was was your outlet music became my outlet i you know i became a very spiritual person because i needed to figure out god uh for me and everybody has their own journey with that and i needed to understand my purpose and music came in such a powerful way that um it was like okay your heart is broken, but I'm going to give you music because music heals. And with that, your heart will be healed. And then you can go out and heal other people's hearts. And that's been pretty much ever since I was 16 years old. I mean, 17, I wrote my first concerto, performed it at high school. It was horrible, but it was a concerto. <laughs> and we're like, what's that exactly? <laughs> it's, it's, well, if the program read like Mozart, Beethoven, mm-hmm. Cardall, but my, my music sounded <laughs> like a nice. really bad Nintendo Russian song. <laughs> I love it. And I love it when you when you Google your name, you like to help others overcome hardships through the power of music and you're reaching more and more people. I mean, 11 Billboard number one albums, Joey sat down, he's like, 
what? Did you read this? Do you know this? <laughs> and, and then you start reading a little bit more and you perform with CeCe Winans, David Archuleta, Thompson Square, Chins, you know, go on and on and on, <laughs> all these names. And so all these people love you for your talent. Then they get to know your journey and know you as a person. You just sound like a, a cool dude. Well, my, my, my wife is a reflection. She uh, She's amazing. She She's made me cool. Um, cause I was anything but not, I'm more of a radio shack battery club. <laughs> than yeah. But music, music clinically is proven. You know, there's, I've got Harvard health studies all over my website about clinical studies showing that if you do listen to certain types of music, the type of music we create, um, you're less likely to have a dementia, uh, reduces anxiety, boosts the immune system. There's a lot of advantages to even people who play the play the piano or pick up an instrument. So I'm always encouraging music. And when did you receive your heart transplant? Oh my gosh, it was, uh, so it was 11 years ago. I had, uh, I started going into heart failure at age 33. Uh, I was on oxygen full time. I got my my parking spot, you know, my handicap parking spot at Costco right in the front. <laughs> uh, and so the benefits, you gotta look at it like that, baseball games, all that stuff. But uh, I was on the transplant list for 385 days, and the only place that could actually do my transplant was in a children's hospital because the congenital cardiologist understood my anatomy, but the uh, cardiologist at any regular hospital did not. And so I had to, we had to, you know, cut a lot of red tape because nobody really had survived. Uh, in Utah with what I had. And so what do you do with these people that survive? Because um, it's called, you know, they practice medicine because they're, they have a number of patients to practice on. But if you've only got one person, it's, it's just, it's all pioneer work. Fortunately, the, you know, I lived in a children's hospital and the sobering experience of that was I was surrounded by kids who were going in for heart surgery or who had heart surgery, and my surgeon, who was this incredible, brilliant, uh, who's now a, a surgeon, who's now at Boston Children's, he he was, his, his parents are from India, he immigrated from India, he, he grew up in Oklahoma, listens to Hank Williams Jr., he's Hindu, and I was like, this is the perfect surgeon, and he was always telling me, listen, you've had a beautiful life, why don't you go and meet some of these kids, and just encourage them and let them know they will grow up they will fall in love they will go to college um and so that's what i spent my time in the hospital doing and so it was it was beautiful because it eased my suffering because i was focused on what can i do for them yeah i was going to ask you know in the same way that your music has been this incredibly cathartic thing for you was is giving back and talking to those kids just as healing for you as it is for them? You know, I think it was more for me. Um, serving other people, I think, is a very, it's, in a way, it's um, it's helpful, but it's a very self-serving thing because that's the key to feeling free and feeling joy. And it takes a, a long time for a lot of people to figure that out. But I always had people taking care of me. People, you know, when I was waiting on the heart transplant list, my wife was like, man, I, I wish we had a tomato garden. So the neighbors put in a tomato garden. By the time I got the transplant, the tomatoes were ready to eat. So, I mean, simple things like that. It's, you know, it's, it's a Hallmark card 
but it's beautiful uh, when you're in need, you see the character of people come uh, to the surface and, and their reality is just, it's mind blowing. So it's funny because it definitely took a turn for me, at least. And I'm, I'm thinking of you being able to inspire others through your music all this time. And then, of course, you know, learning and I'm, I'm imagining these kids, you know, feeling sometimes like looking for just, you know, kind of grasping sometimes for for, you know, some semblance of hope. And here you are, you know, having no shot. You know, and, and I'm assuming you had something like the transposition of the great vessels or something, you know, basically a flipping, flipping of, of all of your vessels. And, and as he said, it's, it's not something that most people even survive immediate, much less, you know, in, into their teens and, and 20s. So, so for someone first like, like you that had what many thought of no chance had to, had to be very inspiring to these kids. Like this is an adult, even though it's a, you know, so every other, every other person in that hospital pretty much is a kid, you know, and, and all those around you were, were, you know, were you 30 years ago, you know, 30 years before, you know, so, so that's so interesting to me. And I, at the same time, I really want to dig into at what point did you learn about the need for a transplant? And, and can you take us a little bit through that transplant journey of, of how, you know, once you learned that you needed a transplant and then what that actually entailed and then kind of through your feelings after? I knew since I was a teenager that a transplant was inevitable one day, but that was like the very last option and a scary option. And they were always trying to come up with other solutions. And when I got into heart failure, um, my cardiologist was recommending a revision of a previous surgery I'd had, but a female doctor had come into Utah and been hired by another hospital. And I shopped around uh, a cardiologist because I don't believe you should just go to a car dealership and take the car they give you. I think you need to talk to a couple different people. And um she basically said, no, 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 that'll, that'll kill you. <laughs> and so I've had two doctors saying, if you do a transplant, it'll kill you. She's saying, if you do this revision, it'll kill you. So that's the predicament. And my daughter at the time was three years old. So my decision-making was all about uh, her. And I studied the psychology of what happens to a child when they lose a parent at what age. Now, it's not easy period, to lose a parent. But if I forego doing the transplant, she um, probably would have me a little longer. You know, maybe maybe I'd I'd die when she's eight years old. If I got the revision, um, I could, it's the same scenario. But I had a better chance of living longer with the transplant. And if I died in the surgery, she'd be three years old and she wouldn't have much of a memory. Um, so that was what I chose to do was not mainly for me, but I wanted an impact that wasn't going to be brutal on her. And then, um, it's interesting because we started to wait for our transplant was listed. They weren't sure even if I could be listed because of my anatomy and, you know, why should we give a heart to somebody that's a risk? And when you have congenital heart disease, it's a pre-existing condition. You, you don't choose it. I didn't smoke my way to the list or drink my way to the list or eat my way. 
lived and survived my way to the list. Like I made, like I had made the cut to be able to continue. And uh, so it was very emotional, very, um, a lot of thought into it. One of the things I need, I did while I was waiting for a transplant that I recommend to people who are waiting is you should keep a blog or a vlog. People need to know what you're going through. And it is the number one, and whether it's public or private, the number one source of therapy is to journal. So I kept a journal and I, my audience was like, what's going on? Why are you not putting out music? Why are you not on tour? And I started sharing what I was going through, but I wrote the blog like it was to my daughter so that if something happened to me, she would have a memory of me telling her about life and what I'd experienced. Um, so, whew, so that, uh, that um, story and all of that, um, you know, became such an influence on some people that I ended up meeting all these families. And one family uh, had a child named Gracie. And Gracie and I had the same medical team. She was a baby that was born with only, you know, a damaged heart. She went for a transplant. She did not survive. And out of nowhere, and I hadn't been performing anywhere for almost six months, her grandfather said, can you please come and play at her funeral? And I, I said, well, I, I can. I, I'm in this overstuffed chair watching Prices Right every day with commercials that actually relate to me now. And, you know, so I, and I, but then my wife said, you, you should go do it. Let's figure out how to get the oxygen tank down there. And I went and I did it and I played uh, to people, but that then led to me going to creating Gracie's theme, which has become kind of an anthem for families worldwide affected by illness. And I and and eventually I had to move into the hospital because my status then you it's so funny the way they manipulate numbers and try to work numbers and you know it's such a catch twenty-two. And I was always kind of a positive I had a really positive attitude. So when the rounds would happen, they'd come in the hospital and see me. I'd be like, hey, how's it going? You know, and with hearts, one day it's a good day and another day it's a bad day. So I happened to be on good days when the rounds would come. And then finally the doctor's like, listen, you got to act sick because you are. Well, insurance is going to kick you out and you're going to not be at the top of the list. And then, so that was just brutal reality is just to stop faking it and start, start just being, mm -hmm. explain how you feel. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so I'm in there, uh, I'm waiting. Um, then they said, you know, you got to go home because you're, you're, you're getting well, but you still need a heart. So I went home for the holidays in 2008 and on Christmas Eve, we're at my parents' house, got all this family. Um, and at, uh, uh, midnight we go home and then they call and say, Hey, we have a Christmas present for you. It's a heart. And I said, on Christmas, are you serious? They're like, yeah. And so I had, you know, I had a, only a couple hours to get ready, you know, and again, what do you say to your family when you're about to go in to get a heart transplant? Um, I had written letters to my daughter and, um, family and, um, 
I, I think it's interesting too, as you prepare for the surgery, as you're in the hospital and they're preparing to go into the surgical room, that they, they clean your body thoroughly. They scrub it, get rid of all bacteria, everything you possibly can. And uh, as a Christian, symbolically for me, that was like, um, I'm going to my, I'm going to my grave. I am I clean? Am I whole? Am I good? Um, and those were things I obsessed about and worried about um, because of the culture that I I grew up in. And then we, I, I'm on the operating table, and on the operating table, they're about to. Uh, Dr. Hawkins is about to do surgery. And I had found out that Dr. Hawkins had just got pancreatic cancer. And he did hadn't he and he, he didn't want any patients to know. But then at the same time, he came to me and says, We have a heart, we have the heart, but the problem is there's an aneurysm on the heart. We can put the heart in you and we can continue and, and then we can do the surgery on the aneurysm in a couple of days. And the other surgeon that was there. Uh, who became my surgeon later was like, no, don't, don't, don't. And so I chose not to do the transplant that day because I was not going to die on Christmas and went home and had Santa Claus and opened up presents and um, went back and waited and waited and waited. And, and then one more tragic thing happened leading up to the transplant. My brother, Brian, um, we talk a lot about this in 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 the broken miracle uh but brian my brother he had di been diagnosed with mental illness after he got his master's degree and he was wrapping up his phd when him and his wife were going back to arizona to northern arizona state and he had not taken the seroquel medicine for uh his being bipolar and he had an episode and as part of the episode she called 911 to try to get some help but instead they ended up tasering him and the second taser killed him and it's it's ironic because i had also been cardioverted the exact amount of voltage that killed my brother uh, 55,000 volts and uh, my pulmonary my 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 pacemaker doctor at the time said yeah they tasered him one more time it would have started his heart back up again um so I had to go to a funeral for my brother, and it 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 you know for years I I was like that should be me. His wife was pregnant, you know, also had a daughter, and that was the strangest, horrific irony because we had to decide if he was an organ donor or not. So we were on the other side, and then the day of his funeral, I made a promise uh to myself i said my mom is not gonna lose two sons uh, i'm gonna get this heart and the surgeon's gonna come up with a creative way to do the surgery that's revolutionary uh to help other people with congenital heart disease because people with congenital heart disease um it's challenging to get the heart out because we bleed because uh, our hearts are so scarred and damaged, it's hard to hook up the bypass machine. And so I was like, "Where well, he's going to figure it out. I was using the power of intention. Um, Wayne Dyer, if you want to read a great book, Power of Intention. And uh, it was, I'm going to get the heart. I'm going to have a successful surgery. And a year from now, on his 
anniversary of my brother's passing. I'm going to climb Mount Olympus. This isn't a mountain. He always climbed. I never could do it. My brothers always went. I could never go. And that's what I'm going to do. And I kid you not, uh, 90 days later, September 9th, 2009, at 9 a.m., from a 19-year-old young man who had signed up to be an organ donor the day after my brother's death in a remote town in the middle of nowhere, unrelated. Um, they put his heart in my chest after they successfully removed my heart that was the size of a football by hooking me up to the heart-lung machine through the femoral artery. They deflated the heart of blood through the femoral artery, then they could open the chest, uh, no bleeding, um, replace, take the old heart out, put the new heart in, a perfusionist was in there to push about 55 units of blood. In a quick process, he said it was very exciting to watch, I'm sure it was, <laughs> but uh, um, I ended up, uh, you know, becoming a Lazarus. Uh, I was raised from the dead by doctors, and uh, um, that that reality is happening all the time. We are raising people from the dead temporarily, and uh, as a Christian, for me, that uh, vindicates a lot of things I believe. I could listen to you all day. Like, you're a dynamic storyteller. I'm, like, with you and holding my breath and, and all of these things, and then I'm thinking, uh, you know, you said, why, why am I going through this? Um, you know, when you were little and you were growing, it's teenage years, and I'm looking at these stats that we have on you and three billion streams globally. Um, you're playing to these sold-out venues, and people are turning to you beyond your music and your blogs, your vlogs, anything that you do, your, your podcast, All Heart, which we love that, yeah. with mm -hmm. Paul Cardall. Yeah. There's that name again. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all the people that you're inspiring, encouraging, educating Wow. You know, I, I'm just surviving, adapting, and my parents uh, instilled in me uh, the formula for happiness, which is to reach out, you know, like what you guys are doing with this podcast and letting people know more about the experience they'll go through or have gone through. Um, that That's really what it's all about. It's just being in the flow with everybody. Right. Connecting and, you know, sharing your story is healing for everyone. I wanted to ask, have you met your donor's family? It's a unique situation because I got a, I got contacted a couple of weeks after the transplant because my story was on the news and I had a lot of different families, uh, their, their son or daughter. And I didn't know what to do with that because it's very humbling. And finally, the, the donor services told me, uh, confirmed the person who I thought it was. And unfortunately, his family had uh, been sent back to Mexico. And his stepfather was so um, distraught over it, he moved out of the small town. Um, so I wasn't able to meet any of the family, but I was able to write a letter and have it translated into Spanish. 
consent of the family in Baja, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I'm very, I'm actually, I feel very proud of my Mexican heritage now. The legacy of your hero, for sure. Your, European native, but I, I've got the, the blood of Mexico That's in me, right. so I'm good. That's right. So, so you talked earlier, you had mentioned, you know, that, uh, that you were looking to climb Mount Olympus. And uh, t- two years ago, I was conned by my wife <laughs> to climb the Coors Mountain, Wilson Peak in, in uh, nice. Telluride, Colorado. Uh, wow. 14 there. And, and I, I was thinking I would be walking, you know, on a trail and then zigzagging <laughs> up the mountain. And next thing I know, I'm, and I'm terrified of heights. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm scaling the side of it. And it's, it's you know... So uh, I, I, uh, I'll never do that again, first of all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> second of all, did you uh, get to, to, to enjoy that journey? It was unbelievable. We uh, invited all, all the family. We printed T-shirts. <laughs> and I, I called the press. So there was no way out of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, That'll I, do it. <laughs> I, had to, I had to climb. But here's, here's another crazy thing. Um, we were climbing and obviously everybody got to the top and kept coming down up to the top. And I was with my dad most of the time. He's always been kind of my strength and patiently walking with me. Um, and as we finally got to the top, we had to ascend rocks and climb over these boulders um, to oversee the entire Salt Lake Valley. And there was a mailbox. Somebody had put a mailbox there because they had lost a child to cancer whose name was Paul. And there were all these letters in the mailbox and people who had lost somebody who had ascended the mountain in honor of them. I didn't even know that when I made this decision, but it was the most thrilling thing, as you know, uh, miserable. (laughs) But when you're up on top, (laughs) it just kind of became a symbol of everything we had experienced. You know, and ascending is not as comfortable either so you always want to be climbing in my opinion (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh we could talk to you all day long how do we follow you how do we support you and we have to have you back on this podcast (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'd love to be back you know it's fun i i just started this youtube channel i think transplant patients might like uh called all heart adventures Mm. and i go out and i do crazy fun stuff like I, I became an advanced scuba dive uh, <laughs> of course you did Yay. After my transplant. yeah so there's some fun adventures doing stuff like that but if you go to my website paulcardall.com that's kind of the train station to get you to the, the music that'll help put you to sleep the adventures that'll make you laugh and mm-hmm. the podcast uh, um, some incredible guests like jonathan rumi who's playing jesus in the chosen uh had a great conversation with him so just a lot of inspiring people. I love to live vicariously through other people. So oh, well, kind of, we were yes. listening to Christmas, your Christmas tunes yesterday, uh, me and my kids, <laughs> while we were preparing for today. So we think you're great. Uh, we love that you they, they, choose to share your stories. Want, they probably wanted a candy cane or some presents or something. <laughs> I know. They were ready to take out the tree. What's going on, Mom? Come on, Mom. <laughs> uh, beautiful work. Uh, we appreciate you sharing uh, details of your life with us and, and continue to, to do that. We certainly appreciate your work. Well, I appreciate all you're doing. Thank you so much. 
And now we take a moment for mental health. Yeah, Sarah, I'm very interested to hear what you have to cover today. Okay, guys. So today we're going to talk about how important human touch is, not only to our physical health, but also our mental health. Um, So first, the most important thing to know is that human touch is a basic primal need for humans. They've done studies showing that if babies aren't physically touched, their growth is stunted both physically and mentally. So it's incredibly important. Um, But next, kind of what I want to focus on is how hard the pandemic has been with social distancing Mm -hmm. and how a lot of people went from, you know, hugging their friends and family, shaking hands even, and to suddenly lose all that, it's detrimental to our health. It really is. Isolating, yeah. And it's, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the, the odd thing or different thing about this pandemic is, you know, so basically we, we, we did all that. And, and of course, I'm speaking from a Cajun's perspective or we that we're touchy. We hug <laughs> right. all the time, That's true. Yeah. you know, and then and then to go and, and really never have any of that contact or not have that contact for such a long time. And then, you know, things settle down. And we you know, I know here our hospitalizations had been. Right. At a very low, lower than what what flu usually is. Mm-hmm. So everybody kind of got back to normal. We started kind of, you know, touching again, hugging again, and and, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, now it's again, back it's, up and, it's ramped back up, and yes, and we're back to no one can touch. So it's it, right. that that part, honestly, for me, is the most difficult absolutely to to, to be able to handle. Yes. Because I'm just, you know, like I said, we're, we're very yeah, intimate, we hug, close. We shake hands in our culture. We shake hands when we meet people. Mm-hmm. We're very dependent on physical touch. So even if you just think about it like that, I mean, it's so vital. And there's tons of literature and research that show that touch deprivation is correlated to negative health outcomes. And when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about anxiety. We're talking about depression. And we even can talk about our physical health, and that's immune system disorders. If we are touch-deprived, our immune disorders go up. I'm apologetic, like, normally, you know, I come in for a hug, here's an elbow, here's an elbow, friend, you know. Um, But I do notice in my my little ones, like even walking out the door today, one more hug, one more Mm -hmm. hug, one more hug. Right. Because she knows there's change coming, everybody's getting ready for school, you know, those types yes. of things. So um, I see all of that coming into play yeah. for sure. You know, I have a friend who lives alone and the pandemic was so hard for her. And she told me even that there were times where she would just hold her own hand just sitting on the Aww. couch just to have. You so don't much. think about those little mm. things. And it's just it reduces isolation, feelings of loneliness. And it's so important. So. What are ways that you we can address that if you're touch deprived? So if you live alone, um, we're getting ready for another wave of COVID. It's happening. We're about to social distance again. I want to give two things that I think are, can be really great ways. Number one is pets. Mm-hmm. If you can have pets, I know some people are allergic, but if you can adopt a fo- foster a pet, um, have something that interacts with you that you can touch, that's just as great for us as human touch they love you more than yeah. some human. <laughs> I mean, yes <laughs> very not judgmental dogs not so much cats <laughs> my, um, my, my roux is a lot better so i have a, a golden doodle now mm-hmm. a year and a half actually we got her the week that the pandemic ramped wow. up oh. we were supposed to pick her up two weeks later but then hurried we, up and got we her. recognized yeah. that we probably wouldn't be able to get her for for a while mm-hmm. so she's i guess what a year and a half now yeah. and she's the she's the best 
hugging dog. Oh, now I can't that. hug other people. I, my, yes. I get home, she comes up to me, she puts her paws up, and she's <laughs> yes. like ready for that big hug. Y'all, they showed in the pandemic like foster places for dogs. Like so many people fostered animals. I think that's amazing. So mm-hmm. if you have the ability to get an animal, a pet, get it if you can. Um, but if you can't, another really great way would be a weighted blanket. Mm-hmm. I have a weighted blanket. Huh. Oh my gosh. It reduces my stress and anxiety at night. Just sitting under my weighted blanket, it simulates a hug. It really does. And it doesn't make you too hot. If you can get a weighted blanket, I highly recommend it. I have well, one. I think I ordered it too heavy though. So we oh. <laughs> <laughs> readjust because I'm like confined. Absolutely. Yeah, but then you can't touch your spouse or your significant other or, you know. No, you're stuck <laughs> under that thing. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. And, you know, when when things settle down again, massages. Get a massage therapist. Go get a massage. It really will improve. Can't wait. All right. If It'll improve your health, your mental health. Good stuff. <laughs> yes. So those are my recommendations. I like them. All right. Maybe you have a question for Sarah. Email us, info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment today, how long can someone live with a transplant? We were tossing this around. Yeah, well, that's a great question, and, and the, the answer is right now we really don't know because we know at least 50 years, you know, because, the, uh, of course, in the 60s, it was more the successful transplants were, were more uh, those within the family, mm-hmm. you know, siblings and things like that because because they didn't have the anti-rejection medicines back then. So we do have some that are 50 years out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we'll really start getting to know a whole lot in the next, you know, 10, 20 years because we've got a ton of people who are still living, still healthy, organs still perfectly normal, functioning, uh, who are who had it in the 80s because that's when the anti-rejection medicines really started. Mm. So that's when the, the number of transplants went up. So we really, if, you know, I'm sure from a volunteer standpoint, people that you've talked to, the, the, the most people who are far out, who are a long ways out, are about, you know, between 30 and 40 years. But there's no reason why that number can't be, you know, eventually get to 70 or 80. Yeah, we get know. that question a lot. One of our volunteers is 50 years out. They just had a huge celebration. Wow. Um, she had actually received her kidney from her sister. Um, and so just a, a great tale of all these milestones. She got to raise her daughter, got to see her grandkids being born. Just amazing. And so many more stories to come. Yeah. Right. Good question. If y'all have a question for us, please give us a call at 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Joseph Dupuy. Joseph, or as his family calls him, Joey Dupuy Jr., was a tissue and eye donor. At LOPA, we encourage families to tell their stories in many ways. Joey's family chose to honor him on a quilt square. You can locate all of our quilt squares at lopa.org backslash quilts. We have 15 quilts in total that honor many of our heroes. Joey is on our number 11 quilt. On Joey's quilt, you can see his picture and his love for music. And now we pause and say thank you to Joey for the gift of life. In 
And that'll do it for episode 170 of The Gifted Life. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, you can register anytime as an organ, eye, and tissue donor at registerme.org. And the best place to find us on our website, thegiftedlife.org. Special thanks to Paul Cardall for coming on. What a great conversation. I mean, what an inspiration, you know, through his music, of course, as we talked about. But, you know, that, that little twist that he gave us, you know, being in a children's hospital with a bunch of children who, who were, they basically lived his life 30 years earlier, you know, to be able to inspire them to know that, look, this is not the end for me. It was, what a great conversation. And a great mm-hmm. attitude and says, yeah. let me use my journey to try and help others. Yeah. I just love that. It's amazing. Um, Definitely listen to any of our episodes on thegiftedlife.org or wherever you like to listen, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating so that others can find the podcast. On social, you can like our page on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. Thanks for listening, guys. And we hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Until next time. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>